Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Yusa and we'll be speaking with Yusa who is a senior lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre and... We're going to be talking about proposed anti-protest laws that would trample the democratic rights of all Tasmanians. And the Human Rights Law Centre has done some incredible work, generally, but also in regards to this, to this dreadful um, atrocity that could occur. And it really does have some very serious implications. So we'll be speaking with um, Yusa very, very soon. And then after that, we'll be speaking with refugee activist Chris Breen, who is from the Refugee Action Collective and he's been found not guilty on incitement charge. And we've done a fair bit of work around this for many months now and it's been a long, harrowing court case. So coming up now is looking at the proposed anti-protest laws used from the Human Rights Law Centre. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. And you're back with the Doing Time show and I'd like to welcome um, you to the program. Hello, welcome. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having me. It is so lovely to have you. All mistakes are mine. Um, 
If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and, and just um, stating what your title is and where you're from. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Yusa Alazawi. I'm a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. I work across our uh, refugee teams and our democracy team as well. And in the democracy team, I look um, specifically at our um, uh, protest rights across the country. And I'm calling in today from unceded Wurundjeri country. Thank you so much. And it's just very timely that we're having you on the show, Yusa, because of the fact that I'm not sure if you heard in my intro that I'll be speaking with Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective after this. I have, yes. I did hear that. I was very, very happy today to hear that um, that charge against Chris has been dismissed. Indeed. We've interviewed the Human Rights Law Centre for many years. Um, you've done some great work. So a coalition of human rights, social justice, Aboriginal and, and environment organisations have called on the Tasmanian Parliament to vote against a dangerously broad anti-protest bill. Can you talk about how that would undermine Tasmania's democracy and restrict people's right to protest? Yeah, well, over the um, past few years right across the country, we've seen a growing trend of laws that would really work to criminalise protest. Um, and this bill that very happily was defeated last week in Tasmania's upper house on Thursday was one such law like this. It was a law um, that was really an anti-protest law that was dangerously broad and uncertain in the sorts of offences um, that it was proposing, and it would have criminalised a whole range of peaceful protest activity right across a range of issues and attached really excessively harsh penalties to those um, Offences. So we're talking about being fined up to $5,000 for posting encouragingly online about protest actions, say, against a company, or potentially being charged for standing on the footpath handing out flyers about gambling harm. So really serious chilling effect on Tasmanian civil society if that had come through. And how did this come about, that this law was, was even debated? Well, it goes back... The history of this law really goes back several years. Um, this was an amendment bill, and the original law um, passed in 2014. It's called the Workplaces Protection from Protesters Act. Um, and that law was even more um, excessive and harsh than this one, and I think sort of saw penalties of up to $10,000 and a host of other um, police powers and, and that sort of thing. That law was subsequently deemed unconstitutional by the High Court in 2017 when it was um, challenged by Bob Brown. And um, this is the amendment bill that sought to address some of the concerns of the High Court. The bill um, passed Tasmania's lower house in late 2019 in November. Um, and really since then, it's, it's been um, we've been waiting for it to come before the upper house. So this is how we got to the point that we did last week. So, sorry, so just to clarify, so has it been defeated yet? It has, sorry. So it, it was debated over Wednesday and Thursday last week um, and very happily on Thursday it was voted down, um, I think it was six to eight in the upper house in Tasmania. Still, it is a very, very important topic because they, they could, it could be done again. That's right. Um, and while it was really great to see it voted down um, this time around, it was really trying to stifle protest activity in the wake of um, big business interests, as was its predecessor law in 2014. 
Um, and I think that the balance there is really still skewed strongly towards business interests. So unfortunately, it seems likely that we're going to face this issue in one form or another in Tasmania again. So I wonder whether that would actually also include um, logging, uh, logging companies. Yeah, that's right. So um, the law was really aimed at um, protesting around forestry land. Um, of and well. a lot of the offences were designed around, you know, trespass against into into business property and um, and that sort of thing, and onto business vehicles. Um, and so it was really aimed at at forestry protests. Um, but it, of course, caught the way that it was drafted caught a whole range of protest activities. So how would that potentially affect marginalised communities? That's a good question. Um, you know, the law would have stopped people speaking out on all sorts of issues that they care about. And for marginalised communities, protest is really a way to generate structural power and amplify their voices. And it's crucial for people in communities to build the awareness needed for change. But if you've got a law that would have stopped people standing in the street handing out pamphlets about, say, the ongoing detention of refugees, or a law that could have stopped people marching on Invasion Day or even encourage, encouragingly posting online about companies exposed to mistreating women and taking protest action against them, and then you couple that with the really harsh fines and the prison sentences that this bill would have imposed, the chilling effect on particularly marginalised communities to generate some power and amplification behind their causes is really scary to think about, I think. Absolutely, and some examples of marginalised com communities would would be, of course, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, people of colour, and, and women. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so the the fact that the offences were so broad in the way they were drafted and they were defined in such uncertain ways would have meant that it would be so easy to be caught by these offences, um, and particularly for people. Um, coming out on, on issues within marginalised communities like you named. What I actually found quite extraordinary is the way that this law was portrayed on the ABC and also other TV channels. And anti-protest laws weren't discussed. The word anti-protest wasn't even looked at. It was more in terms of the government saying that businesses would be protected. Don't you find that interesting? I do. I do, and I think it's a really good indication of where the government's priorities are with this law. And um, I think, you know, when you talk about protest rights, there's always a balance. Um, and people's right to protest is really fundamental. It's really fundamental to democracy. Um, and there are other rights as well that that interplays with, and people have a right to go about their work and be able to do their jobs. So what we're seeing in Tasmania is a balance that's really skewed away from protest rights and really in favour of big business. And for example, this law would have seen people fined a huge amount for a protest action that didn't even impact business activity. So to me, that might be the framing of the law from the government's perspective, but that's not really getting the balance right. That's not protecting people's rights to speak out on the issues they care about at all. No, it isn't, and, I, and a particular concern also is, you know, if 
say, um, BHP or, or any mining company wanted to mine a sacred site and ab- there really isn't very much protection around heritage, is there, for Aboriginal people? And imagine if there was a group of Aboriginal people that wanted to, to protest against that. What would happen then? That's precisely right. You know, and when we look through history, protest activity has helped so much positive change in our society, um, you know, be it marriage equality, be it um, First Nations people being able to change discriminatory laws to vote, be it the eight-hour working day. Um, so having it sort of framed as this really dangerous and sort of criminal um, behaviour is, is a trend that really needs reversal. And you're absolutely right that it's when we look at it in perspective um, as to the protections afforded or being thought to be afforded to businesses versus the protections that could be afforded um, about the actual issues people are speaking out about, be it, be it sacred sites or anything else, the balance just isn't there. I mean, how can, how can businesses be affected anyway? I find that hard to understand, to be honest. Well, I think the concern is that, um, you know, in some forestry protests, there are um, a variety of tactics used by protesters that are sort of called non-violent direct action. They fall into that wheelhouse. Um, And that might include sort of um, standing at entrances of, um, you know, business premises or standing around trees or that kind of thing and... and, um, actively stopping the logging from being able to go ahead on a particular day. So I think those are the kinds of, um, of actions that, are, that the law was really targeting. So this is really more about criminalising dissent? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's precisely right. Um, and if you sort of look... If you really look through the veil of that framing, this is really about stifling protest activity, which would have a seriously um, detrimental effect on civil society. Sorry, yeah, you broke out there. What did you say? Detrimental effect? Yeah, that's right. I was just... uh, Sorry, I was just saying that um, it's really about criminalising dissent in a way that would have a really chilling effect on Tasmanian society because it's scary. If these are the consequences that people are facing when they think about whether they want to speak out about the issues they care about, it's scary. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, you know, we don't want to end up like Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? So we're very very happy to see this law defeated last week and um, it it was a very good moment for Tasmanian democracy, I think. Absolutely. So, yeah, well, it's, we've gone for quite a while. I hope you haven't minded that we've just done a little bit of an extended interview today. Um, no problem. Do you have any, any comments to make, any final comments to make before we finish? Um, just, just really to say, um, you know, governments have a responsibility to uphold and to protect the right to protest and that our ability to come together and to speak out about the things we care about is really fundamental to our democracy. So our government should be protecting that right. They shouldn't be aiming to criminalise our ability to collect and speak. Absolutely. And I'm just actually, before we go, you go, I'm just having a look at this 
something in the media release here that I just wanted you to expand on. Is that okay, just quickly? Mm. Yeah, sure. Because so, sure. it says here, making Facebook posts or sending tweets which encourage protest action against companies exposed yes. as exploiting workers or sexually harassing women. That is so disturbing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And that is why we were so concerned about this law. I mean, that law, that's an offence and it doesn't even have to impact business activity. It doesn't even have to touch company at all. Um, but you could tweet out your support of a protest action against, you know, a company or whatever, and that could be enough to get you fined up to $5,000. So it was, it was really serious, this law that we were dealing with. Honestly, it's it's pleasing that, that it was defeated um, because there are already existing laws, aren't there? That's precisely right. And that was a big part of what made this law unnecessary, not only broad and uncertain and excessive, but unnecessary. Tasmania already has existing laws that deal with trespass. They have um, enough provisions within the criminal code. So it was unclear why this law was needed at all. Absolutely. Well, let's hope that nothing nothing further is eroded here and that we can continue our right, right to protest. And pretty soon we're going to be interviewing Chris Breen about just that, about what happened to him, because he didn't even get to go to the protest, did he, last year? That's right. That's right. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thanks so much for having me, Marissa. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content... It's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au And it's approximately 4.19 and we're now going to go into a song. A song. 
so far from home. Listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. I'm not afraid of 
and you're back again with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.23. And previously you were listening to an interview with Yusar Alazawi from the Human Rights Law Centre and she was speaking about anti-protest laws that were defeated and in Tasmania and she's from the Human Rights Law Centre. And we're going to be continuing our discussion but before we do that, just wanted to say that that was a song by the beautiful Ruby Hunter. And coming up next, we've got Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. And as I said earlier, he was acquitted, found not guilty on the incitement charge. And we're going to be speaking with him um, very soon. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to have you. Chris, what a, what, what a crazy year. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So I'm wondering, just to recap, if you could just recap what's happened um, in regards to just a bit of background, and perhaps just give us an update on what's happening, what happened with the court, and of course we can't forget our refugees. Okay, so on April 10, um, 2020, uh, the Refugee Action Collective organised a safe car convoy um, to protest the um, ongoing detention of the Medivac refugees in the Mantra Hotel in Melbourne. Uh, we did it in cars because of the you know, COVID situation at that point. No more than two people per car, nobody getting out of their car. And as a result of that, uh, there were 30 refugee supporters who were fined $1,652 each uh, for breaching COVID regulations, uh, supposedly, and making a total of around $50,000. And I was charged with incitement because it was my name and number that was on the Facebook um, uh, event. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was quite a threat to the right to protest. Um, there's been, uh, I was charged, um, when I was charged with incitement, the police held me in a, you know, at the station for nine hours. They seized all of my computers, uh, my phone, my son's computer, went to court to get that back and uh, finally got a verdict this morning, which uh, very thankfully was not uh, guilty. Um, so it was not guilty on the grounds uh, that the police, the, the, the police were relying on particular Facebook uh, posts and updates and wording of those posts, and they couldn't prove that I had made a particular post, um, not another member of the Refugee Action Collective, and they couldn't prove that they'd been made at uh, the relevant period of time uh, when the stay-at-home directions um, came in. Um, they didn't rule on a whole range of other legal issues, um, you know, uh, whether or not we fell under their care and compassion, arguments for stay-at-home directions, the constitutional questions and human rights questions. So, um, unfortunately, the uh, fines for refugee supporters um, are still uh, in place. They will be heard in court in coming months. And I guess what we'd say is that now that I've been found guilty, uh, really the Andrews Labor government should be directing the police not to pursue such political um, charges 
and the, the fines against refugee supporters um, should be dropped as well. Um, I guess I'd also point out that the uh, refugees who we were, um, you know, protesting for, and I should also um, thank at this point uh, uh, my lawyers uh, from Fitzroy Legal Service, the debt, um, Shenfield, uh, Gordon Chisholm, Julian Morrow, and uh, Moz, uh, Mustafa Azimbitaba, uh, Moz from Manus, who gave evidence in the case. You know, it's quite a thing when refugee... Uh, supporters are getting solidarity from, you know, refugees who have been locked up for eight years. Um, and the, the refugees in the Mantra Hotel, the majority of them are now free. However, there are still 11 who are held in the um, Park Hotel in uh, Carlton. Um, you know, and that's particularly cool. And those people who are, who are left there are left wondering, you know, if they'll ever get out. There's around 80 Medivac refugees held around Australia still. Um, and they're wondering the same thing. And it's caused great anguish for those people who are still held inside. There's been, you know, uh, suicide attempts and self-harm incidents. So, you know, above all, we would call for those refugees um, to be freed uh, from detention. You know, enough is enough, and, and that has to end. Yeah, look, it's really important to talk about the Medivac refugees because there's already there's already um, refugees still in those hotel prisons in over Australia, around Australia, isn't it? Uh, yes, there are. I mean, there's, there's 1,200 people um, who were sent offshore in 2013 who are now living in the Australian community. Like, they've effectively, despite the coalition's rhetoric, they're effectively being resettled here. But they've been, you know, dumped in the community without any support. They can't get uh, job seeker sometimes, can't get Medicare. And so that's the other big issue is that they, you know, they deserve um, permanent support, uh, permanent visas. They deserve income support. Uh, I mean, there's actually been no refugees come under the usual humanitarian program in Australia since March to, uh, 2020. There's usually, um, you know, the current cap is a, a measly 13,000. But, uh, you know, when you think there's only 260 people left in the offshore Hellholes, you know, PNG and Nauru, they could easily be um, brought here as well. Um, actually, the other thing I should probably point out, um, what we were drawing attention to at the time as well is the threat of COVID-19 to the refugees um, in detention, which was very real. They had very little protection. They had a real fear about that. There are now 13 refugees in Port Moresby um, in staying in Australian-funded hotels who have got uh, COVID-19. They've been left and just told to stay in their hotel rooms without any support. Australia owes those refugees a duty of care and uh, they should all be brought here uh, to safety and, you know, the, the, the others as well who are at risk, um, high risk of catching COVID-19 uh, in, in Port Moresby. So just to, put, to clarify that these refugees have COVID-19... Yes, they have COVID-19. There are 13 refugees in Port Moresby uh, that Australia sent offshore that have COVID-19. And nothing's being done? Uh, no, nothing is being done. Nothing is being done. They've just been told, I've spoken to some of them, you know, personally, um, they've just been told to stay in their hotel rooms. They have no health care. They have no... I mean, there's a, there's a huge... Um, COVID crisis in uh, Papua New Guinea. I, you know, they, they they haven't got done much testing, but they did one testing in a labour ward and 40% of people 
had COVID-19, there is a, a real risk of, you know, the PNG health system not being able to cope um, and the refugees are getting zero support. And it was Australia who sent them there against their, their will. They didn't apply for asylum in Papua New Guinea. They sought asylum in Australia and, and they should be brought here. This is indeed an atrocity, Chris. Yeah, I mean, so it's absurd when, you know, fingers are pointed at a protest. There has never been a case of transmission of COVID-19 in Australia from a protest, not a single one. Um, it is the, you know, coalition government, uh, which, you know, in terms of the refugees, has disregarded the threats of um, COVID-19, not uh, refugee supporters. Indeed, and, you know, I have had, I have had many, many people... Um, saying to me, ah, oh, but it was the Aboriginal protesters that spread COVID-19. A lot no, of people... No, not... It yeah, no, so that was a, a lie that was a, intentionally um, talked up by, I think it was Greg Hunt uh, yes. at the, yep. the time. Um, mm-hmm. There was a person who was found to have COVID-19 who was at the rally, uh, but yes. he did not spread it to anybody. Nobody caught it off him at the rally. Um, it's you know it's uh, the, I mean the Brett Sutton, the chief health officer in Victoria, has admitted that being outdoors is twenty times safer than being indoors. It's you know it's not where uh, COVID spreads. It really is a, a gross a gross contradiction and gross violations of human rights with these refugees. And I think what I want to draw attention to today in this interview as well, Chris, and we're doing like a double pronged effect here is that the charge of incitement is most concerning because had you been found guilty, that would have been an extremely dangerous precedent. Can you talk about the charge of incitement? Yeah, absolutely. The the charge of incitement, I mean, it came out in the... the, There's there's hardly any case law about it, and all the case law that result for incitement is murder cases. Um, So to, to use incitement as a charge against protesters... Uh, the police were really trying it on in terms, it, it, you know, it is a political charge. The last time incitement was used against protest was against the Odd Study 5 in 1992. Uh, there was a student protest that um, uh, went up the steps of Parliament House and five activists were charged with incitement. Uh, they were found not guilty at the time. So it's been a long time since these laws have been um, tried to be used if I had have been found guilty, it certainly would have been a uh, threat to, you know, not just refugee protesters, but I think all social movements, uh, climate protesters, the, you know, the fantastic women's march that we saw uh, the other day to unions. I mean, there's, you know, very narrow legal grounds where unions can uh, take industrial action. And so if you call a picket or a strike or the mass assembly outside of those grounds, unionists could have faced uh, those uh, the, the uh, union leaders face the same sort of incitement charges. Uh, so, you know, there was technical legal grounds about it, but it, overall it is a win for the right to um, protest. Um, some of that's been, I think, won on the ground as well um, over a period of time. So refugee protesters kept up uh, protesting in, in, in forms uh, that they could um, and that's, you know, we've now seen there were around 2,000 um, people who protested at the Walk for Justice for Refugees on Palm Sunday um, yesterday, calling to free the refugees and for uh, permanent visas and offshore processing. 
Um, and that really is important. It's been won on the ground. Uh, you know, we've also seen the Black Lives Matter protest, the, the protest over the, you know, <laughs> disgraceful sexist response uh, of the, the, the Liberals to, you know, the, the rape um, allegations. Oh. Um, and protest does make a difference. Um, it, it really does. What on earth is happening in the Parliament, Chris? Well, the, uh, the, 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 I mean, the, you know, the Parliament is a joke. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise that, I mean, the same, you know, Christian Porter who faces a historic rape allegation, which, you know, nobody in the Coalition has taken um, seriously. Uh, you know, Morrison and Porter haven't even read, uh, you know, the, the, the details of the um, allegation. That same Christian Porter was found recently by a, a court to have um, misled uh, about legal advice that he provided around the Medivac um, uh, legislation. He only re released a tiny part of it in order for political advantage, and that's essentially what the court had found. And, you know, again and again, this government is concerned about looking after its, itself more than um, anything else. I mean, when, you, when we talk about uh, rape um, allegations, the uh, alleged rape of um, Brittany Higgins in Parliament House is not the first uh, rape that has been swept under uh, the, the carpet for political reasons. I mean, there's, you know, on Nauru, there were over 20... Um, incidents of, uh, sexual, of sexual harassment and rape that were documented in the Nauru files, but no action was ever taken um, against the perpetrators. Women were left uh, with their perpetrators in many circumstances, particularly when they were guards who were paid by the Australian government. Um, you know, it's, the, the, the government has, uh, has, has formed on these things. Absolutely, and... So the court, is it true then that the court is public knowledge, like all that's happened so far that's transpired in regards to your court case? That's public knowledge, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean, but the, like the, it was I'm an open court. Open it was a public, a public hearing. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it open was a public pizza. hearing, correct? It was a public hearing, so, uh, you know, you're free to report on that. I mean, people are not allowed to record the, the court, but... Um, Certainly people who attend are free to report it's open court, yes. Oh, fine. OK, because I just wanted to ask you just a specific question about process, about what yeah. happened during the court proceedings. How did they actually... How did the, per, the, the prosecutors um, try to come to those conclusions to try and get you charged with incitement? Because, I mean, was there any case law, for example... No, there was there was no um, there was no case law. Uh, they were essentially arguing that by encouraging people to go to, uh, they were saying that the protest uh, breached the health laws. I mean, that was always the opinion of um, the Preston police. Uh, we'd got some legal advice at the time. Uh, the <coughs> the you know, that wasn't uh, necessarily the case. Um, you know, it was new new law and that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the law didn't explicitly rule out the right to protest and that was part of the um, argument. But the police argument was that it breached the um, health laws and by putting up the Facebook events, we had incited people to attend the protest and that was essentially their argument. Okay, 
Um, there was a lot of argument in court that took place around uh, the question of care and compassion because at the time there were four reasons that you could leave home. Uh, one of those was for care and compassion. Um, and, you know, part of our argument was that obviously we were there to free the refugees, which is, the you know, the greatest uh, question of care and compassion. Uh, but it also had a, you know, mental health uh, benefit, which, you know, Moz has talked about many times, written a song about uh, just knowing that people are out there, that they weren't forgotten and isolated. It, it made a real difference to them. You know, we also collected some um, support packages and care packages on the day. And so, but in the end, the, the court didn't never ruled on that particular issue. Um, you know, that may come up in the the cases of the um, the fines, uh, which are, are still to be heard. And you don't know when that's going to be heard. Uh, no, I don't. It's in coming months. Um, I, I think some of them are as soon as. April, uh, but I would have to double check that um, information. And when when they do go to court, RAC will call protest and be at the front uh, supporting you know uh, all of those people. Look, on behalf of the Do and Time Show, I wanted to actually wish you and you the very best, Chris, because it, it has been it must have been a very very stressful time. Um. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was stressful, and certainly it took up countless hours, days off work. I mean, that's nothing compared to what, you know, refugees have gone through for the eight, last eight years. Um, and that is what we, what we have to, do to change above all, uh, what we will keep fighting for. Um, and if I just give a, a little plug, the next event that yep. RAC has coming up, actually there's two events, uh, we've got an, a, a forum on um, April 12th about um, bridging visas and temporary visas and how they leave people in permanent insecurity. Um, we've got a range of speakers at that from Liberty Victoria, the Bridger Deans, Farhad Bandesh, who's a released refugee, and two um, young Iranian refugees, one of whom is a 16-year-old uh, Australian taekwondo uh, champion, but has been living here on a bridging visa, uh, you know, for, for eight years, and so she can't travel out of Victoria uh, to compete in, in, you know, various things. Um, so that's at the Kathleen Syme Library, six thirty on Monday, April the twelfth. And I guess I'd also like to plug that Victorian Trades Hall Council is holding a welcome refugees barbecue on. Uh, Friday, April the 30th at 6.30 at uh, Trades Hall, um, which will both be welcoming those refugees who have been freed. Um, we'll have a range of them speaking um, and also keeping up the fight for those people who are still held inside. And that barbecue is free for anyone to attend. Uh, you know, donations for the refugees are welcome, uh, but we are asking that people get tickets uh, just, I think there are still some uh, COVID restrictions that trades has to make sure it makes. Let's hope that there's no more lockdowns because there's an outbreak in Queensland at the moment. Yes, yes, I've, I've seen that. Let's 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 hope indeed. Yeah, because 20,000 Victorians now have to be tested. Apparently, who've come from Queensland. Yeah, I mean it's it's well, I guess more than hope. We want to make sure that the. the the, the testing and tracing regimes are up to scratch. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine rollout has started, but that's a, a long way from um, solving things. 
And we, we know that there has still been nothing done about the problems of casualisation that led to outbreaks in meatworks and aged care and, you know, none of those things have been solved. So certainly we... I, <clears throat> nobody wants nobody wants another lockdown. Nobody wants COVID to spread. Absolutely. And, and this is... This is what's important to know here, that in, at all times the Refugee Action Collective has been safe when organising protests. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're only too aware of the threat of COVID-19 and what that has meant for uh, refugees. Like, you know, refugees were stuck inside, three to a room. In the early days, they were handled by guards without protective equipment. They had no uh, equipment to protect themselves, no face masks, no hand sanitizer. Uh, there were international airport staff coming into the, the Mantra Hotel. There was one uh, guard um, who, who, who got COVID-19. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a real threat and a real fear. Um, and, I mean, they shouldn't be locked up in the first place. Uh, you know, there's, there is no good reason to keep people locked up for eight years. I mean, there's another man in Mitre Detention Centre, Rajan, who's been there 11 years. It's, you know, it's, it's just cruelty beyond words. And to demonise um, people such as yourself and to criminalise you like that and, and also the other protesters that, that attended. Well, you didn't even attend. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the when the Andrews government in, oh, I forget what year it was, spoke out about the um, the Let Them Stay refugees, Baby Asher, um, in the, and said that those refugees would be welcome um, in Australia. It, it made a real difference. I think they said at the time they're already here. Well, the, the you know, the refugees, the 11 in uh, the Park Hotel, the 20 in Mitre in Broadmeadows are already in Victoria. You know, it would make a, a difference if Daniel Andrews would speak up for those refugees. Um, and call for them to be released. Uh, it's, it's not a difficult call to make. I mean, there are more and more uh, Labor MPs who've spoken out about it. I mean, you know, Peter Khalil, one of the latest to, to call in Parliament that all the Medivac refugees should be released. Um, it's, you know, it, it really is uh, beyond time. Beyond time, indeed. And just one last question, Chris. In regards to cross-examination, how did you go with that? Um, <laughs> that's probably for others to judge, not me. I, I, I thought I coped okay. Uh, I got cross-examined for um, four hours or so. Um, and again, a lot of that was around some of the care and compassion things. Um, yes, I'm, I'm not sure what... Like my, my lawyers have said there's... Um, I, I'm not quite sure about what things I can say about the, the court itself, so I'll, I'll, that's okay. yeah, I'll, I'll leave some no, of that. that's okay. And I'm certainly not looking for particulars. I suppose yeah. what I'm trying to convey to listeners here is that the incitement charge is usually applied to murderers. Yeah. So yes, no, no, I did, I did face four hours of cross-examination about, you know, what I thought. Well, they're, they're kind of thought crimes at one level. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, and it, it can be it can become very difficult to you know this is a very very complex area and to be honest, let's end it spoon here and and I just want to say right here and now to listeners that I I'm just really thankful that you've been acquitted. 
so am I, um, you know, both for myself and for the, the wider implications that the, the, the case has. I'm sorry, what was that? I, I said I, I'm also very thankful, both personally and also for the, the wider implications that it had. Um, I, I think hopefully that means that the police are going to be much more reluctant to, to try the same thing on again. Indeed, I hope so. OK, Chris, thanks for doing all those plugs and also talking about the plight of refugees, and I'm hoping that we can have many, many more protests and, and a lot more forums to draw attention to what's happening to refugees and asylum seekers and, and let them stay. Yes, let them free, let them stay. Uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks a lot. Take care, Chris. OK. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. G'day, this is Jacob from Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And this is the Doin' Time Show 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And it's approximately 4.50 and wanted to thank our guests, wanted to thank um, Yassar from the um, Human Rights Law Centre and also Chris Breen as well for speaking um, on the show today. So before we, we actually end, I wanted to just quickly read out a very short article in regards to leaked plans to reform the NDIS lead to crisis talks across disability sector. And this is a media release that was actually put out by People with Disability Australia, a radical plan to reform the National Disability Insurance Scheme that was leaked to the media in news that has been unveiled has caused widespread tension. And basically that was... Um, put out on the 26th of March 2021 
and a radical plan to reform the National Disability Insurance Scheme that was leaked to the media in news, unveiled, has caused widespread tension and anger among people with disability, their families and supporters. People with Disability Australia President Samantha Connor said reports about the confidential 300-page draft were deeply concerning. As Senate estimates this week, representatives from the National Disability Insurance Agency said that they had consulted extensively with the disability sector over the past few months, she said, to discover that there are significant changes proposed that will disadvantage people with disability, along with a proposal to cut out co-design with participants and disabled persons organisations, is deeply concerning. The Sydney Morning Herald and The Age report that the draft includes a proposal that could deny funding to Australians with, with fetal alcohol syndrome and acquired brain injuries considers reducing avenues of appeal and canvasses removing the reasonable and necessary test for the provision of supports and services, along with other, other radical changes. Mrs Connor said that the contents of the report must be scrutinised carefully and the trial for independent assessments um, halted immediately before any further discussions are held around disability reforms. It is clear that there are significant issues around both the independent assessment trial and the proposal to change the NDIS legislation, she said. Of particular concern is the proposal to remove support from participants in prisons and those based in external territories like Christmas Island. NDIS support should not be rationed by punitive measures that will disproportionately affect target population groups, especially First Nations people and those living with multiple levels of disadvantage. Excluding people with fetal alcohol syndrome, acquired brain injuries and the prison population would remove support from disabled people who are very vulnerable in our society. In a submission to the, to the FASD inquiry mid last year, the Australian Human Rights Commission called upon the Australian Government to improve treatment and support for people living with FASD. Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner, Dr Ben Gauntlet, said it is, essential, it is essential adequate resources are widely available to prevent, diagnose and effectively support those with FASD. Ms Connor agrees. 60% of Aboriginal people are disabled. A study was released in 2019 that reveals 89% of children in a WA youth detention centre are cognitively disabled. 36% of those children have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, she said. It is the highest rate of FASD in a prison environment anywhere in the world. Is this really what Australia is proposing? Punishing disabled children based on their circumstance or postcode? Crisis meetings are being held around the country in the wake of the news to determine what action the disability sector will take. Discussions are centred on the reform bill which is due to be tabled in Parliament in about a week and widespread concerns about the independent assessments that are being piloted across the country. The proposed mandatory assessments have been awarded to a number of contractors, including to a group of substitutes co-owned by former NDIA CEO Rob DeLuca and the company he runs. The NDIA was under fire on Thursday night as Senate estimates, as senators grilled bureaucrats over the independent assessment process and the tender process. Government must immediately cease 
independent assessments and engage in a meaningful co-designed process with people with disability, their families and the organisations that support them as outlined in the disability sector statement, Ms Connor said. This scheme was initially designed by disabled people and their families in conjunction with those who support us if we are not at the table. That is when it all goes wrong. People with Disability Australia will be making a submission on independent assessments to the Joint Standing Committee on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The organisation encourages all people with disability, family members and representative organisations to submit their views. Submissions close on 31st of March 2021. It's approximately 4.56 and we're just about at the end of our show but I thought it was really important to read out that media release. Samantha Connor was unavailable for, for the interview, but I wanted to actually read that out because it does affect prisons, marginalised communities and Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders and refugees. So it's goodbye from Marissa and we'll be going out with our theme song Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band. And next Monday you'll be hearing a special um, repeat from International Women's Day um, program that, that we organised a couple of weeks ago. In the meantime, stay safe and take care of each other and I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. Bye. Are you the one who's got-